On this episode of Bleak, I, Amanda, am going to be doing a deep dive into the murder of the four Idaho college students. Buckle your seatbelts, because it's about to get bleak. <laughs> Okay, so I know I already talked a little bit about, um, on the last episode, they had just arrested the suspect in the Idaho college murders, and so I did like a 15-minute mini-episode on what we knew at that point. I wanted to say that was like around January 5th, January 4th, something like that. Now a whole lot is known because right after I did that episode, I want to say it was the next day, they released the probable cause affidavit, um, which gave a lot of information on this case that wasn't known before. So anybody that follows true crime a lot is obviously going to already know the basic information that came out of that document. But I still wanted to go through it. I'm not going to read it word for word like a lot of other people have done. Um, You know, there are a lot of podcasts where if you just want to have someone read it to you, you certainly um, can find that out there. But I'm going to kind of just go through each section of it and just say what my thoughts are on it and some of the... um, There's been a lot of controversies... I can't talk. Controversies on this case about... um, some of the actions of the surviving roommates and there's been um, some issues with uh, legal counsel that is uh, representing the defendant, Brian Koberger. So I wanted to get into some of that, um, some of that stuff and just kind of uh, explain what I know about it and what my thoughts are. And um, I have thoroughly researched this case almost to a fault. I, um, feel like maybe I could hopefully provide a little bit more insight into just what I've learned. And, uh, you know, so that when you listen, you're not just hearing the same, the same thing you've heard, you know, a hundred other places. So without further ado, I'm just going to start at the beginning of the probable cause affidavit. Now, if you don't know what a probable cause affidavit is, um, it's basically a document that a judge signs that basically justifies the arrest of somebody. So they, you know, the probable cause affidavit does not have to have, you know, every piece of evidence that they have against the defendant or the suspect rather at this point, but it has to be enough that, you know, a judge thinks it's likely the person committed this crime, you know, more likely than not. And from what a lot of legal experts have said about this particular probable cause affidavit in this case is that it goes above and beyond what the standard is to make an arrest. So, um, if you're familiar with the um, that case in Indiana, I'm drawing a blank, um, but they had just released a probable cause affidavit. I know the perpetrator, suspected perpetrator's name was Richard M. Allen, um, the Delphi case. Um, that probable cause affidavit compared to this one 
um, this one is like a masterful novel compared to the Delphi case. Um, so from everything I've heard, like this one, the one for Brian Koberger goes way above and beyond what they would have needed to present to get him arrested. And we can only guess that they have a lot more than what's in here. So I'm going to start, um, at the beginning of the affidavit and just kind of go through each part. So this is written by a officer named Brett Payne. And it says, you know, he's a acting peace officer with the County of Lata, state of Idaho. And he's employed by the Moscow Police Department um, in the official capacity of a corporal. And he has been in this position for approximately four years. So the, from what I've learned, probable cause affidavits can be written by you know, a, a lot of different members of law enforcement. They will choose the person to do it based on a lot of factors, but oftentimes if they think um, the person that wrote the probable cause affidavit is going to need to testify, for example, they might not want that person to, to write it because um, there's a lot of reasons for that, but I think one of them is so that they're not... Um, pulling information out of the affidavit as like evidentiary information when that's really not the purpose of the affidavit. So, um, it talks about, so Brett, this is coming from the, the perspective of Brett Payne. And the reason I bring that up is because, um, you know, he's just one officer. Um, he actually did not arrive on scene at the, uh, homicide until, 1600 or 4 o'clock p.m. and the police were called just before noon. So he arrived to the scene about four hours after the murders occurred. So it says on November 13th, um, Moscow Police Department Sergeant Blaker and I responded to 1122 King Road, Moscow, Idaho, hereafter the King Road residence. So of course, I'm going to refer to it that way as well as the King Road residence. That is the house where the crime occurred. Um, so he says, upon our arrival, the Idaho State Police forensic team was on scene and was preparing to begin processing the scene. So they hadn't even started processing the scene as of 4 o'clock p.m. So he starts talking about how an Officer Smith is... Um, one of the initial responding officers is uh, basically giving him a walkthrough of the scene. So um, this is from the perspective of Officer Smith, who's been there since, uh, you know, 12 o'clock when they responded to the residence. And Officer Smith is giving Brett Payne a walkthrough of the crime scene. So it says here they entered the King Road residence through the bottom floor on the north side of the building, so the front door. And I think I touched on this briefly last episode, but in case you aren't familiar, the residence is a three-story, you know, uh, off-campus rental home. And it basically is set up to have two bedrooms and a bathroom on each floor. And then a lot of the living spaces, like the kitchen and whatnot are on the second floor. Um, so that's how the house was set up. 
and the there was an entrance in the front, which is where these officers on the affidavit are walking in, and then there's also um, a back sliding glass door, and if you enter through that back sliding glass door, you enter on the second floor of the home. So, and so you go up some stairs, it's almost like a deck. And so that's obviously important because um, they believe that's where the intruder entered the home. So, at, so he, they enter the front door and um, they go down a hallway and immediately go up to the second floor. So the first floor isn't, I mean, the whole house I think is technically a crime scene, but no crimes were committed on the first floor. And I don't believe the perpetrator even entered the first floor as far as they know. So it's the second floor and the third floor of this house that are really the crime scene. Um, that's where all of the murders uh, occurred. And uh, he talks about the, so they get to this west bedroom on the second floor and he learned through her driver's license and other personal belongings that this was the room that uh, was Xana Kernodal's room, hereafter Kernodal room. Uh, just before this room, there was a bathroom door on the south wall of the hallway. And then it just says, as I approached the room, I could see a body later identified as Kernodal's laying on the floor. Kernodal was deceased with wounds, which appeared to have been caused by an edged weapon. Um, so that's new information because a lot of people speculated prior to this document coming out that all of the roommates had been murdered in their beds. But in actuality, we know that was not the case with Xana. And Xana, um, so she's on the floor. And they haven't touched the crime scene. As far as I know, nobody gave CPR or anything like that. So this is, she was murdered either right outside her bedroom or in her room. And her final resting place was on the floor of her bedroom. And then it says, also in that same room, later identified as Ethan Chapin, hereafter Chapin, was also deceased with later determined, uh, you know, injuries to be caused by sharp, or sorry, sharp force injuries, essentially. So same thing as, as the other victim. It does not say, oddly, where Ethan was. My assumption would be that he was in the bed, but it doesn't outright say that. And I do think sometimes these affidavits will strategically leave things out in order to protect evidence for any given reason. So I don't know if that was left out intentionally or not. But, uh, yeah, it doesn't say where Ethan is in the room so then it says he followed, Officer Payne followed Officer Smith upstairs to the third floor of the residence. And again, that, that floor had the two bedroom and the one bathroom. And uh, the bedroom on the west side of the floor was determined to be Kaylee Goncalves, hereafter Goncalves' room. I later learned from review of Officer Nunez's body camera that there was a dog in the room when the police initially responded, the dog belonged to Goncalves and her ex-boyfriend, Jack DeCour. I found out from my interview with Jack DeCour the same day as the homicides that he and Goncalves shared the dog. Um, Officer Smith then pointed out a small bedroom on the east side of the third floor 
This bed bathroom shared a wall with Madison Mogan hereafter Mogan bedroom, which was situated at the southeast corner of the third floor. It says, as I entered the bedroom, I could see two females in the single bed in the room. Both Goncalves and Mogan were deceased with visible stab wounds. Uh, so it appeared that the girls, uh, Maddie and Kaylee, were both murdered in the bed and were sleeping in the bed together. A lot of people have speculated that maybe Kaylee was sleeping in her own bedroom and then, like, heard commotion and went to go see what was going on. However, we learned after the fact that Kaylee actually had moved out of the house. And uh, Kaylee and Maddie were best friends. And so she actually, uh, Kaylee had bought a new Range Rover. And there was a party she wanted to go to. So she actually uh, was just staying with Maddie for the weekend and had moved out of the house. So that kind of makes more sense why they would be sharing a single bed in the room if Kaylee had already moved all her stuff out. So, um, this was also a big deal that was revealed. It says, I also later noticed what appeared to be a tan leather knife sheath laying on the bed next to Mogan's right side when viewed from the door. So you can picture, um, you know, the two girls laying in the bed, uh, deceased, obviously, and then um, there's a leather knife sheath laying in the bed next to Maddie. The sheath was later processed and had KBAR USMC, which stands for United States Marine Corps, Eagle Globe, and Anchor Insignia stamped on the outside of it. The Idaho State Lab later located a single source of male DNA, suspect profile, left on the button snap of the knife sheath. So, obviously, this is, like, really important for the case. And uh, one thing I wanted to bring up is there is a, uh, online, there was a user in a Facebook group called Papa Rogers. And a lot of, you know more reputable sources have said that Papa Rogers is in fact or was Brian Koberger and something that I remembered seeing was in one of the Facebook groups about this case so this would have been you know between the time of the murders and because it took six weeks to get Brian Koberger arrested so there was a guy in one of these Facebook groups with the screen name Papa Rogers and he was he was kind of obsessing about a, a knife sheath being left at the scene. And it was odd because there was no mention of that in like any kind of public record. The police had not released that information. And this guy was like very incessant that he, that the perpetrator must have left the sheath of a knife. And everybody was like, asking this guy, like, why do you think that, you know? And uh, he just had a lot of strange inside information. And now it's come out that they do think that this Papa Rogers was likely to be Brian Koberger. Now, of course, a lot of people are going to say, well, we don't know that for sure. Um, so one thing I wanted to bring up about that is apparently 
a lot of people thought it wasn't him because there was some activity on a Papa Rogers account after he had been arrested. However, um, one of the FBI officials, um, she's a former FBI agent that actually was doing like her own research on the case. And she was on a podcast and she had said that they actually, she could see based on one very small difference in that other Papa Rogers account that was posting after the arrest she said she was really able to tell that that was not the same person. So, in fact, that original Papa Rogers account actually, because that person stopped posting essentially the day that Brian Koberger was arrested, which would make sense if it was him. So, I personally believe that it was him. I don't see why anyone else would think that a knife sheath was left at the on the bed. I will tell you, though, that the police did go to uh, some kind of a knife shop or a shop that sold knives, at least, in the Moscow area, and they were asking about a knife that matched that sheath. So, I mean, that information could have gotten out, and, of course, law enforcement, you know, could have accidentally leaked that. I know people... Some people thought it was a little odd that they would even say what the type of weapon was because that information came out even before the um, arrest that they knew it was known that it was a K-Bar knife. So anyhow, um, that's just my opinion on the whole uh, Papa Rogers thing. And uh, something that's interesting, too, is... The whole Papa Rogers, there was a mass murderer named Elliot Rogers. And if you look into him, that is what the Papa Rogers name is a homage to, is this Elliot Rogers. And he committed several homicides and kind of a rampage attack. I don't know all the details, but you can find it, you know, online. And... He was considered an incel, like a lot of people are saying Brian Koberger is. If you don't know what an incel is, apparently it means you're involuntary cel involuntarily celibate. Um, and apparently there's a lot of groups online where these so-called incels kind of uh, gravitate and meet up with each other. And it gets very, the talk in some of these groups gets very misogynistic and kind of feel like they're owed, you know, women to want to be with them. And this uh, Elliot Rogers uh, lines up with a lot of that ideology. So to me, it would make sense that Brian Koberger would use him as a reference in his screen name. I mean, all of that fits. So anyhow, back to the affidavit. Um, so then they go to talk about, as part of the investigation, numerous interviews were conducted, obviously. Um, two of the interviews included the surviving roommates, uh, Beth Bethany Funk and Dylan Mortensen. Uh, they call them BF and DM. Their names are widely circulated out there um, to the point that I don't really see the point in not saying their names because you can literally find it anywhere. Um so both Bethany and Dylan were inside the King Road residence at the time of the homicides. And um, 
Bethany's bedroom was located on the east side of the first floor. So that was the floor that they don't believe the perpetrator ever was even on. And then, um, they don't get into those interviews specifically, but then they start talking about what Chapin and Kernodal. So Chapin is Ethan Chapin's Anna Kernodal member. They're a couple, um, Ethan was the only male in the house. He did not live there. He was Zana's boyfriend and spending the night. This was a Saturday night. So, um, there was a big, uh, University of Idaho football game. So of course, a lot of, uh, activity, a lot of parties, things of that nature. So on the evening of November 12th, the night of the murder, cause they were murdered around four in the morning, um, so technically they occurred on the 13th, but they're going to talk about their activity the evening before. So it says Chapin and Kernodal were seen by Bethany at the Sigma Chi house at, or sorry, Sigma Chi house on the University of Idaho campus um, from around 9 p.m. till 1.45 a.m. And that at around 1.45, Chapin and Kernodal returned to the King Road residence. Uh, gun. Gonsalves, and I just wanted to say too, last time I think I was calling her Goncalves. This was before her name was widely circulating. It's Gonsalves or Goncalves. It's like a Portuguese name. So I apologize for uh, saying her name wrong. I don't like to be, I don't like doing that, but uh, I didn't know at the time. So anyhow, Gonsalves and Mogan were at a local bar called the Corner Club. Apparently it's a really popular bar in the Moscow area. A lot of college kids go to this bar. They were there from approximately 10 p.m. to 1.30 a.m. Um, at approximately 1.30 a.m., Gonsalves and Mogan can be seen on video at a local food vendor called the Grub Truck. So this is pretty crazy. The Grub Truck actually live streams video from uh, on a platform called Twitch. So you can actually like watch people go up to the truck and order their food. So of course, Maddie and uh, Kaylee were picked up on, you know, on this video. And there was all this speculation because in the video, and it is a little strange initially when you look at it, um, we now know it's Brian Koberger, but at the time, you know, you can kind of see this guy in a white hoodie in the background and the girls order their food and then they kind of are off camera for about 10 minutes. And then as they go to leave, um, they had had a, someone pick them up. And as they go to leave this guy in this hoodie, you can kind of see, it seems like he's following them. But then, you know, they immediately, the police said, you know, he was ruled out and, um, he was unfortunately heavily looked at to the point where, you know, these online people were kind of making this guy's life miserable. He was actually a really big hunter that liked to actually kill animals with knives. So of course that fueled the speculation even worse. And, um... But he's been completely ruled out. And there it was first reported that Goncalves and Mogan got a ride from a, like, a Uber. But it actually, there was a, like, a ride service for upperclassmen that um, one of the friends of one of the victims was interviewed on Dateline. And she says that University of Idaho, they tend to use these um, services that have other students provide rides to upperclassmen or to any any aged 
you know, college students, but they, you know, it's usually someone you know, you know that person is sober and they just think it's a safer, you know, safer way to go. So they got a ride from this ride service through the college and it was about a one mile ride from the grub truck to the King Road residence. So at that point, you know, they know that nobody in the vicinity on that video is involved or that, you know, after they were able to rule that out. So it says, uh, Dylan and Bethany both made statements in the inner, in their interviews that indicated the occupants of the King road residence were all home by 2 AM and all asleep or at the very least in their rooms by four o'clock AM. This is with the exception of Kernodal, who received a DoorDash order at the residence at approximately 4 o'clock a.m. Law enforcement identified the DoorDash delivery driver who reported this information. I thought it was pretty crazy that DoorDash was delivered at 4 a.m. And you will find out that they believe the intruder entered the home somewhere in the 4.04 to 4.06 a.m. time frame. So that's really close. And, you know, they don't identify the DoorDash driver by name in this document. But yet if you, you know, read the first couple pages, they identify Jack Decor, the ex-boyfriend, by name. So it leads me to believe they possibly left the name of this DoorDash driver out of the document on purpose. So I'm curious if this goes to trial, if something about that's going to come up, if there, you know, is a reason. Because, of course, if they had left everyone's name out of the document, then I wouldn't have thought as much of it. But it seems very strange that the per the driver's name is left out. That was just one of my observations. Um, another thing is, you know, I drive for DoorDash. I have four kids, so I drive for them because I get a, you know, I can work when I want and, um, I need that flexibility. And so something I thought of just from the perspective of a driver is if I'm doing deliveries at four o'clock in the morning, first of all, that's probably the slowest time of the day. If you look at, you know, a 24 hour time period, what time of the day are you going to get the least amount of orders? 4 o'clock a.m. would be about the time. Even in a college town, people are usually done ordering food by, you know, 2 in the morning, maybe 3 in a town like uh, Moscow. But 4 is pretty late, pretty late or early, depending on how you look at it, to get food. So one thing is if, you're not, if a driver doesn't get another delivery right off the bat, they typically, or at least this is what I do, is I will sit near my last delivery and wait for another delivery to come in. So my thought is, it's very possible that this driver saw something. He may not, you know, we don't know if the food was delivered to the front door or the back door. A lot of people were like, well, he probably just delivered, he or she probably delivered it to the front door. But the thing is, you know, Zana ordered it. Her bedroom was on the second floor. A lot of times people put in specific instructions of where they want their food delivered to. So to say it might not have been delivered to the back door, I mean, we don't know that. It very well could have been. But even if the driver, the DoorDash driver, can put Brian Koberger at the scene in his white car, 
Like, that's huge, because that's a corroborating witness. Because as we find out in the document, there there is another witness, which is one of the surviving roommates. So now they're going to start talking about the account of Dylan Mortensen. So it says, Dylan stated she originally went to sleep in her bedroom on the southeast side of the second floor. Um, Dylan stated she was awoken at approximately 4 o'clock a.m., by what she stated sounded like in Calvis playing with her dog in one of the upstairs bedrooms, which was located on the third floor. Um, a short time later, DM said, or Dylan, said she heard who she thought was in Calvis say something to the effect of there's someone here. A review of records obtained from a forensic download of Kernodal's phone showed this could also have been Kernodal, meaning it could have been Kernodal saying someone is here, because her cell phone indicated she was likely awake and using the TikTok app at approximately 4.12 a.m. So, I have a very distinct and clear theory of what I think happened. And, you know, that was new information. You know, initially it was reported they were all in bed sleeping. Now we know Xana was awake and was likely awake when she was attacked and we also know her body was found on the floor not in the bed um so yeah i personally think it was probably xana that said there's someone here and uh, i'm gonna get into my theory at the end um and then it goes on to say dylan stated she looked out of her bedroom but did not see anything when she heard the comment about someone being in the house so she peeks out her door doesn't see anything so far, none of that's all that alarming in my mind. You think your roommate's playing with the dog? You might be a bit annoyed about that, right? It's 4 a.m. Why is she up playing with the dog? Um, then she, it says Dylan stated she opened her door a second time when she heard what she thought was crying coming from Kernodal's room. She then said she hears a male voice say something to the effect of, it's okay, I'm going to help you. We don't know if so i'm gonna just address this off the bat um because dylan has been heavily criticized like to the point where it's gonna ruin this poor girl's life about her actions or lack thereof and i just want to say just because you hear crying coming from a bedroom canodal's bedroom which is xana you know dylan knows xana is with her boyfriend first of all College relationships can be extremely volatile, dramatic. You hear a little crying coming from someone's room. That's not necessarily going to be like, oh my gosh, someone's there murdering you. And we don't know if the person that said, it's okay, I'm going to help you, was Ethan or was that the perpetrator? We don't know. So it goes on to say at approximately 4.17 a.m., a security camera located at 1112 King Road, so next door, there's a huge apartment building next door, um, it picked up a distorted audio of what sounded like voices or a whimper followed by a loud thud. And then it says a dog can also be heard barking numerous times starting at 4.17 a.m., the security camera is less than 50 feet from the west wall of Kernodal's bedroom. So this is very close to her room. So I feel like you can kind of deduce that she's probably being murdered at this time. It's very, this uh, part of the affidavit is, of course, awful, but it's, uh, you know, very telling probably of what happened. 
Of course, Dylan doesn't know that. Of course, she doesn't suspect that. So it goes on to say, Dylan stated she opened her door for the third time after she heard the crying and saw a figure clad in black clothing and a mask that covered the person's mouth and nose walking towards her. Dylan describes the figure as 5'10 or taller, male, not very muscular, but athletically built with bushy eyebrows. The male walked past Dylan as she stood in a, quote, frozen shock phase, end quote. The male walked towards the black, black, the back sliding glass door. It says Dylan locked herself in her room after seeing the male. She said she didn't recognize who he was, and they believe the perpetrator left the scene at that point. So this is what's been so heavily criticized. And I'm talking, like, there are groups on the internet with hundreds of thousands of people that are just ripping this poor Dylan to shreds. Basically saying, like, she could have somehow saved the roommates. Because as as we know, the 911 call did not come in until just before noon. 11.58, something like that. Here's the thing. This is my take on all of that. You have to remember, so Dylan's like 20 years old, so she's young. She's, to me, a 20-year-old is still a kid. She's living in a party house, and when I say party house, the night before the murders, um, the Friday, so the murders happened on a Saturday night, so the Friday night, there was a party at that house, at the King Road house, that hosted upwards of 150 people. This was reported on Dateline. And it even said none of the roommates that actually lived in the house were in attendance. And there was a noise complaint and, uh, you know, somebody called Maddie on the phone. So there would be times where parties are being held at that house where literally nobody that lived there was in attendance. That's pretty telling as... So if you look at all of what Dylan's saying she heard and saw, none of it equates to four people have been murdered. She didn't hear screaming. She heard some crying, but not, uh, you know, it doesn't seem like it was anything. Like the person wasn't hysterical. And she did see the, the perpetrator in the house, which is kind of the part that everybody just can't get past. But the thing is, first of all, he's wearing like a COVID mask. He's not wearing a ski mask. And I think that's an important distinction because it would be much more cause for concern for her, in my opinion, to see someone in a ski mask than to see somebody in a COVID mask. Like, we've been seeing people in COVID masks for going on three years now. And she sees that this guy's leaving So that could explain why he put his mask on. Maybe he's a germaphobe. Who knows? Um, And, but she gives a great description of him. You know, she was able to say five foot ten or taller, which we now know is accurate. Um, You know, he's in good shape, but not overly, you know, muscular. And the bushy eyebrows. Now, of course, a lot of people say, well, what does bushy eyebrows even mean? Look up a picture of Brian Koberger. He has bushy eyebrows. Many people do not. Some people do. Um, so I do think it's a distinctive feature. I mean, considering the fact that he did have a mask on 
and he was wearing black clothing, I think her description is, is great. And uh, it was something that was not known. You know, they everybody had thought that Dylan was on the first floor and slept through the entire ordeal and heard and saw nothing. But it turned out she was staying on that second floor and actually saw the perpetrator. Now, a lot of... We don't know what else Dylan said in her interview. This particular part of this affidavit is not... In terms of arresting Brian Koberger, what she did after she saw him isn't that important in terms of getting him arrested, right? So some of that is going to come out in trial, if there is a trial, if he doesn't take a plea deal. But the thing is, is people need to leave this girl alone. That's my public service announcement. They really do. One thing people are getting really hung up on is the police officer that's writing the affidavit says, you know, Dylan stood in a frozen shock phase as the male walked back toward the sliding glass door. And that frozen shock phase is in quotes. Now, here's the thing. She may have used that term, frozen shock phase. I think that's a very odd thing to say. It also says, you know, she describes a male clad in black clothing. Do I think that Dylan said to the officer, I saw a male clad in black clothing. I don't think she said that. I think she said, I saw a guy, he was wearing all black. And that makes a difference because the word, you know, saying, oh, he was clad in black clothing, you know, it sounds like something out of a horror novel. Um, and so that leads me to believe that the frozen shock phase was just a reference, whether she said that or whether that was the officer kind of paraphrasing, you know, we don't even know for sure that I don't think this particular officer even interviewed Dylan himself. And, you know, he didn't interview all the people that in this affidavit, he's just putting all the information together. So I think people are just making way, way too much of this whole frozen shock phase uh, thing. And it also, something I wanted to point out is when they're talking about frozen shock phase, it's just referring to the few seconds as the perpetrator is walking towards Dylan. She freezes. It isn't talking about, because then it goes on to say, you know, that she went back, she ended up going back in her bedroom and locking the door. And at that point, we don't know what she's thinking. We That doesn't tell us anything else. So the thing is, she, the frozen shock phase just refers to the few moments after she saw the man in the house, saw the perpetrator. At the time, she didn't know he was a perpetrator. She just knew he was a kind of, you know, a weird looking dude in the house. So... Is this, this document is not saying she was in a frozen shock phase all night long in her room. I personally think she was a little spooked by this guy. She thought maybe Kaylee or Maddie brought him home from the bar and that he was leaving. And she did think something was maybe off about him, but not to the point where she wanted to call the cops on her friend's, you know, hookup or whoever he is. You have to imagine there's coming and going at all hours of the night at this house. Um, and I just personally think, even though she was probably a little creeped out, I don't think she thought much of it. And 
I I personally believe because people are like, well, why did the nine one one call not come in till eleven fifty eight in the morning? I honestly think she, based on what we know, there were some friends came to the house. I think that uh, Dylan called a male friend and was in her room and said, hey, I saw this weird guy in the house last night as he was leaving. That's the other thing. He was leaving. So at that point, like, he's not a threat anymore. She doesn't know anyone's been killed. She saw the guy leave. So at that, you know, that's also something to keep in mind. But anyhow, I think she called a male friend and said, hey, this is what I saw. I'm kind of scared to come out of my room and would you mind just coming over and checking the house for me? And the thing is, if it was a night where everyone's out partying, Dylan had been up, you know, she was still up at almost 5 a.m. Even if she called a male friend at 7, you know, if he's been up all night, and he, you know, he's nobody on a Sunday morning in a college town is going to want to go over to someone's house at 7 or 8 a.m., so my thought is, if nobody gets to the house until, you know, 10 or something, and they're, and this is obviously speculation completely on my part, but, you know, we don't know if, Dil, you know, Dylan comes out of her room and then they kind of see that one of the roommates is laying on the floor with blood around them and they're so freaked out by it that they don't even, you know, go touch them. And that's when the 911 call comes in um, about the unconscious person. A lot of people speculate that the, they were so shocked by what they saw that they were being very unclear on the 911 call. So the dispatcher just dispatched it as an unconscious person to get, uh, to get law enforcement to the home to get help right away, not really knowing exactly what was happening. But having an unconscious person, you know, let lets the cops know that somebody really does need help. And uh, so we don't know. But I think that's all going to come out in the uh, in, in court if, in fact, Mr. Koberger pleads not guilty and there's a trial. So based on the combination of Dylan's statements to law enforcement and review of phone and video, evidence it's believed the homicides occurred between four o'clock and 4 25 a.m now if you look at i'm not going to go through all the canvassing they did but a lot of how they found Koberger was through um you know a lot of people have ring doorbell cameras there's businesses that have cameras um so they did like a video surveillance poll where they interviewed people in the neighborhood to see what kind of surveillance they had so what I gather from that information is, you know, at some point they start seeing this white Elantra kind of behaving strangely in the area. They talk about him, you know, going, um, passing the King Road house like three times. He does like this weird U-turn and he tries to park, but for some reason he can't. And then um, it seems like the last time they see him on camera at you know before the murders occur is around like 404 so kind of leaves you to believe that he probably entered the house around 405 you know just give him a minute to walk from his car into the to the house he likely entered through that back sliding glass door the same that he exited it at and um they also did find a bloody footprint 
at the scene and it's um just outside of Dylan's door. So that's consistent with Dylan's statement regarding the suspect's path of travel. So that footprint could be big. They said it was a Vans type shoe. Um so yeah, they talk about the video canvas, which obviously is really important. And then um they get into um, they, you know, they start referring to the white Elantra as suspect vehicle one. They talk about the fact that, you know, there's not a lot of coming and going in that area at that time, in that time frame, which is obviously important because if you're only seeing a few cars in that area, then you can kind of narrow down your vehicle. Um, something that they noticed that was like a distinctive feature of the vehicle is that the vehicle did not have a front license plate. And front license plates are required in Idaho and also in Washington. And um, Washington is only about, uh, University of Washington's 10 miles from Moscow, Idaho. So there are a lot of people that, you know, go into Idaho from Washington and vice versa. I live in Minnesota. You know, we live not maybe within 30 minutes of the Wisconsin border. It's not unusual for people I know to go into Wisconsin. So it's the same type of thing. Um, and then they see the suspect vehicle one, that white Elantra departing the area of the King road residence at a high rate of speed around 4:20 AM. And then they talk about, um, where they're, you know, seeing him next on the video footage. And, um, so after they get that information, they know that they're looking for a white Hyundai Elantra. Initially, so they have an FBI agent whose entire job is to look at surveillance vehicles and identify a possible year and make and model of vehicles. So this FBI agent starts looking at this particular uh, unknown white vehicle on the surveillance footage, and he pegs it as being a 2011 to 2013 Hyundai Elantra. But then it says, um, upon further review, the detective from the FBI said it could be 2011 to 2016. So they broadened the range of the years that it could be. Now, part of the reason, and this might be a problem for the prosecution, it, you know, um, there was, so a Washington State University uh, campus officer so they sent, the police sent out a bolo be on the lookout for that white Elantra before they sent that out to the public. So this very uh, good campus uh, police person took the initiative to run white Elantras at the University of Washington to see what came up. Um, and he actually found Brian Koberger's Elantra, but at that point he had a front license plate, which they knew that the one on surveillance did not. But despite that, he ended up sending the tip in about the white Elantra and they also went and found it and saw it parked in the parking lot. Now, something we find out later is Pennsylvania does not require front license plates. Now that's going to be really big for identifying this vehicle as Brian Koberger's because it 
you can see on surveillance that the unknown vehicle has no front license plate. And, you know, he was, that vehicle was originally registered in Pennsylvania because that's where he's from. So now he, his tabs were actually due to expire at the end of November. So that, that's a little, I don't know if he planned it that way. Um, but he ended up getting new tabs and new license plates put on his vehicle that, um, the end of November. So that's why suddenly he suddenly goes from not having a front plate to having a front plate. Now that might seem like really smart on his part, but it actually kind of ended up not being so great for him because now they can say, well, we have this vehicle that didn't have front plates and we're, you know, these are states that require front license plates. So that's a very distinct and unusual characteristic of the vehicle. And that's, that's pretty compelling. Um, so then they talk about, um, so something that was left out of the affidavit is the fact that they ended up actually really narrowing it down to Koberger after they got the results of the genetic genealogy back. And they don't talk about that at all in the affidavit. And they don't really need to because, you know, and they ended up matching the DNA in the end anyways. Because I was kind of confused. I'm like, okay, the Washington security officer put his tip in to the, you know, um, they had like 20,000 tips on Elantras. So how did they narrow it down? Like I couldn't figure that out based on the affidavit. And what we don't see, and you, the, there's been um, like 2020 Dateline and a couple other shows have done uh, episodes on this case. And that's something they all talk about is sometime in this time frame, you know, the weeks after the murders, they get the results back on the genetic genealogy. And that's when they identify Koberger, right? And the thing is, is they go back and they say, oh, his there's a tip in here about him, but we just didn't know it was significant. So they probably would have eventually identified him without the um, genetic genealogy, but who knows how long it would have taken for them to narrow it down to that particular Elantra. So of course, genetic genealogy in this case is absolutely huge. Um, so then they also talk about in the affidavit how they were able to um, verify that Brian Koberger really was the driver of that vehicle. And, of course, that's important to do. You want to make sure that you're saying, look, nobody else is driving this vehicle. So they talk about, you know, traffic stops where he's on camera driving that vehicle. This guy gets pulled over all the time, which is strange, but it's that is what you see here he had been pulled over numerous times in and around washington and moscow moscow sorry and um he was pulled over twice going across country to go back home for christmas he did a cross-country trip to pennsylvania with his dad and the indiana state police pulled him over twice within like a 15 minute period i will say you know the fbi is denying that they had this done comma Sorry, I said comma because I'm used to doing like voice to text and it just came out. Um, anyhow, so I think the FBI totally could have lied about that. They have no reason to tell the public the truth. 
um, if they did or didn't have him stopped. I personally think they did. A lot of people are saying, well, they said they didn't, so they didn't, but I don't think that necessarily means anything. Um, so they talk about Koberger taking this trip across country in the vehicle to Pennsylvania with his dad. And then there was a traffic stop prior to the murders where the officer asked Koberger for his phone number. So that is how they were able to start investigating his phone. Because at that point, they didn't know what his phone number was. The phone was brand new as of June of 2022. So the records go back only that far. One thing that came uh, to light in this affidavit was that he started likely stalking these victims in August of 2022. Um, and he... his. Uh, phone pinged in the direct area of the King Road residence 12 times in the months leading up to the murders. So he was definitely stalking them. And all of those 12 times, except for one, were in the late evening and early morning hours. So the Brian Koberger's sitting outside that house at odd hours of the night watching them. So we know that. Um... Another thing is, you know, the FBI was a little off on the years of that Elantra. That could be something that comes into play. I've heard this by a lot of uh, defense attorneys were saying, like, initially they said 2011 to 2013, and then all of a sudden they find Brian Koberger as their suspect, and then they change it based on what his vehicle is. And I see their point there, but I actually myself drive a 2013 uh, red Hyundai Elantra. And let me tell you, the body style from year to year, especially, you know, 2011 through 2016, really didn't change that much. Um, so I, I, I don't know that that, I think the jury will be able to hopefully um, not make much of that. But that is something I'm sure the defense would try to try to bring up. Um, so yeah, they find out, they talk about the stalking of the victims. They talk about the fact that Koberger's phone, which is pretty much never off, goes silent between, it stops reporting to the network between 2.47 a.m. and 4.48 a.m. So guy's phone is off or on all the time. And then the two hours around the time of the homicides, it goes dark. Yeah, people can say, well, that, you know, he knew to shut his phone off, but Having your phone off around the times of the murders like that, and he, you know, he turned his phone back on while he was still in his car driving from the scene, um, likely disposing of evidence. To, you know, he was in some really remote areas when he turned his phone back on, but that's highly suspicious in itself. And they talk about that in the affidavit that you know people will do this to conceal their identity while they're committing a crime, essentially. So. Um, from what I have heard from, you know, experts in the field, they say that this affidavit goes, like I said in the beginning, it's, they, a lot of people said it, it's just so well done. Um, they really give you the whole story. It's very compelling. It goes above and beyond what would be needed to arrest Brian Koberger and, um, I would recommend reading it in full if you haven't, or you can have someone read it to you. Um, it's really easy to find 
podcasts that will just have it read. But there is a lot of, you know, times and dates and cell phone pings and things. And, you know, um, you can get the, the idea of what's in there without necessarily reading every single word. Um, also, he actually went back to the scene at around 9, 10 a.m. the day of the murders. Now, something I thought of was, can you imagine he comes back, he knows what he's done, and there's no police presence there yet. I can imagine that that was very confusing for him. Um, so that was just uh, something to note. I will say he, uh, a lot of people speculate maybe he was hoping to go back in for the knife sheath, but thankfully he didn't do that because he could have killed more people. So at the very end of this uh, affidavit, they talk about doing, um, they were staking out the Koberger home in Pennsylvania where Brian was staying for Christmas or for the holidays. And, uh, you know, at that point they had the genetic genealogy. They needed to get a direct match from the suspect or the suspect's family to that sample. So when they get when they get genetic genealogy results back, they can't just go arrest the suspect based on that alone. They actually have to do um, they it's called surreptitious DNA. So they obtain the suspect's DNA or family's DNA surreptitiously, meaning without them knowing. And um, usually that's done either through a trash pole or they follow them to a restaurant and get DNA like off of their fork or something like that. And in this case, um, they actually saw Koberger disposing of trash at the neighbor's house, oddly, in the middle of the night. You know, that's a normal thing to do completely. And they pulled DNA off an item from that trash bin, and it was actually the DNA of the biological father of the suspect profile. So they got that match, uh, excluding 99.9998% of the male population, which is like one in some odd crazy quadruple bazillion number you know some something that's just you can't even wrap your head around um so that's definitely his dna um and then at that point after he wraps it up he says you know based on the above information i'm requesting a arrest warrant for brian c Koberger, date of birth 11 21 94 um, and then for the four counts of the murder and burglary. So that kind of sums up that affidavit. So I wanted to talk about, I'm almost, uh, almost done here, but one thing I wanted to talk about, I already talked about Dylan and kind of my thoughts about her. I just want to say again, encourage people to leave this girl alone like she doesn't she's already been traumatized she's being re-victimized I think by people in the the public and it's it's not cool leave her alone we're, we're gonna find out more about the delay in that 911 call but I guarantee you she didn't know what had happened um, another thing that's very um, interesting about this case is Zana Kernodal's mother is a woman named Kara, Kara Kernodal or Kara or Kara, it's spelled C-A-R-A. Um, Brian Koberger's court-appointed defense attorney is a woman named Ann Taylor. Ann Taylor has represented Zana Kernodal's mother at least four times in the past on drug charges. 
And Zana's mother was actually arrested about a week after the homicides on drug charges, which, you know, that poor woman, I mean, I don't even blame her. Who knows what I would do if that was me. I pass no judgment on the woman. But the thing that everyone's bringing up, because Ann Taylor actually dropped Zana's mother as a client based on, like, a conflict of interest. Right now she's representing the murderer of her daughter, essentially. One thing I will say about this that I learned is in the state of Idaho, there are 13 uh, state-appointed, sorry, that's my phone, uh, 13 state-appointed attorneys that can handle death penalty cases. They have to be credentialed to do so. It isn't like any lawyer can take a death penalty case. So the reason why Ann Taylor dropped Zana's mother and not Brian Koberger is because any attorney can take a garden variety drug case, which is Zana's mom's case. But not all attorneys can take a death penalty case. She is the only attorney, uh, state-appointed attorney, that can take a death penalty case in pretty much all of northern Idaho. Because you have to remember the big cities in Idaho, like Boise and Idaho Falls, are all in southern Idaho. So that, a lot of people are like, oh, you know, how heartless of the attorney to just drop the mother. And now, you know, Brian Koberger can use this in his defense and blah, blah, blah. But Ann Taylor literally, you know, the attorneys that live down in Boise are not going to want to come up to uh, Moscow for possibly the better part of a year or two years while this is all going on to be the attorney for Brian Koberger. That would, you know, these people live there. They they have children there. They have homes there. So it makes sense that this is how it went down. Uh, it's not anything, uh, you know, I'm sure this happens in smaller towns quite a bit that we just wouldn't necessarily know unless we lived in a smaller town. But the vast majority of cases and death penalty cases are going to be in Idaho are coming out of Boise. They're coming out of Idaho Falls. So when they have, like, regions assigned to these death penalty attorneys, only 13 in the whole state, it, it's just the way the cookies crumbled that the particular area where these homicides occurred, there's only the one attorney. Um, so, and the, the other thing that people just need to remember, too, is... A death penalty case, even if it's, you know, being defended through the public defender's office, a death penalty case is the person is, by the Constitution, is entitled to a very robust defense. Brian Koberger will be assigned like six attorneys. He's going to get attorneys and experts from all over the country. This Ann Taylor is not going to be the end-all be-all attorney for him. So... You know, that's the other part of it, too. And I think a lot of people don't realize that they think, oh, well, he's getting a public defender. It must not be, you know, very good or, you know, he must be getting these subpar lawyers. But Ann Taylor, from all accounts, is a very good lawyer. And like I said, death penalty cases, they have to defend these people really robustly. So anyhow, um, I'm going to wrap it up here. Let me know what you guys think about everything I talked about. And um, his next court appearance is not till June. So the nothing official is probably going to much come out until then. June 26th is the date. 
And uh, some other things have leaked out, like search warrant uh, items and whatnot. But um, it sounds like they have a ton on him. And I think, you know, they, they never like to call cases slam dunks. But I personally think they're going to have a very compelling case um, against him. So anyhow, um, I'm going to get going. But thanks for listening. And hopefully Laura and I can get together soon and do our regular episodes i just wanted to record more on this case because i've been kind of immersed in it for a while and um i'm not probably gonna you know talk any more about it until unless something huge comes out or until that uh hearing in june um so yeah thanks for listening and we'll see you soon